0: Katie. I'm very excited to have you in the poetry space so far. We have my co-host Tim, Dick Westheimer, Jack DeVehee, and then of course also we have Breckner and Bugladon, whose name I am sorry I'm pronouncing terribly, but I'm happy that you're here. And then Carla Schwartz as well. And I'm going to go ahead and invite Tim to co-host and sent that invite as well. I'm really excited for everything we're gonna get into today. As I have not shut up about on Twitter, sonnets are my personal favorite form. So I'm really excited to go ahead and look more at them and even debate possibly what constitutes being a sonnet because I find a debate somehow everywhere, even when there shouldn't be one perhaps. Hey Tim, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, how are you doing Katie?
0: I'm doing great. I have multiple coffees in front of me, which I probably shouldn't, but I do. So that's my secret.
1: <laughs> well, I only have half of Americano left, but I'll, I'll try to stick, stick through with that. So let's start out with a with an opening poem. This is um, we're talking about sonnets this week, and this is um, from our sonnets issue of Rattle, which we did way back in the winter of 2009, so 13 years ago. This is the one that I think about the most, just because I love the last couplet. I think it's really funny. Um, and the whole poem is in general, Any Hack Can Crank Out 100 Sonnets. This is Steven Kessler. Um, here he goes, Any Hack Can Crank Out 100 Sonnets. Any hack can crank out 100 sonnets if he has to. All you have to do is set up your metronome and start typing, taking dictation from the day's small gifts, whatever presents itself in the street or dredges itself up from memory or dreams itself out of your transcribing hand. It's an insidious form because it's almost easy, leading you by the wrist through rules and rhythms as old as the English language translated down the ages and idioms transformed by time and driven by dying breaths. It gives you a false sense of what you meant when the closing couplet clinches your argument. And I do love that that end couplet. Every time I have a couplet at the end of a sonnet, I think of that and wonder if it's just a false sense of knowing what I meant.
0: I would feel very proud and not question it if I felt that way at the end of writing sonnet personally. I would just go with it.
1: I think that's the way forward. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. So, we had a sonnet issue, and I think we did uh, about 20. How many were there? Maybe 24. We had a good number of sonnets, all sorts of varieties because there's so many. Um, and I don't know. So, what do you think? How do you want to start? Do you want to talk about sonnets in general, Katie? What, what is your definition of a sonnet?
0: All right. I think we should start with defining it because I think that's a fair thing to do when you're gonna talk about something for an hour is take a second to try to define it. So technically, I guess it is derived from the Italian word "sonetto," which means little song. So that's obviously a great hint to the musicality that I think is such a huge part of sonnets in general.
1: Yeah, well, definitely. And then there's so many versions of sonnets, which is the fun part too. you know, the the moving from the Italian sonnet to the uh, English sonnet and all the different forms and ways you can play with it. It's a lot of fun. But but what is it about the sonnet that makes you, you said it's your, fa- your favorite form. What is it that makes it your favorite?
0: I think that for me, it's, you know, I per- tend to prefer short poetry. So I think that anytime you force poetry into a container that is a size you've grown to expect, it's really amazing how much poets can move around within that form. So the line, the expectation with only having the 14 lines, although there are variations that are different line lengths, as we'll get to later, it sets up the expectation that you have to move. If you want to get somewhere in a sonnet, you have to be moving. And that's a big part of what I like about it. You can't linger or else you're going to miss out on having turns, a pivot or a volta, which is a rapid progression into a movement that usually happens in the last couplet that can be brought in earlier as well. And I love the word vaulted, by the way, that's part of why I love sonnets because I just picture having no background whatsoever in gymnastics, you know, a person doing the vaults, which is like the most fun to watch. And that's how I feel like a good sonnet should actually feel is at least watching it, not knowing what it feels like to actually vault in gymnastics at all. <laughs>
1: Well, my, I don't know if I've ever shared my um, the theory on sonnets and why they're so popular. Um, but one thing I love about it is I think there's a sort of a sacred geometry to it. If you know anything about sacred geometry, I mean, I wondered, I even looked up if um, the founder of the first, what is his name? The first guy, um, Giacomo de Lentini of Palermo, um, if he was maybe some kind of, um, you know, knight of Templar or anything like that. But um it's really interesting to me because the, it's, you know, the traditional sound, is an iambic pentameter and an IM is the heartbeat. So it's like, you know, it's unstressed, stress ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. That's your heart. And it's the most natural way of speaking. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that, that there's uh, five you know, beats per line, 14 lines, which means there's 70 heartbeats. Which could be think thought of as seventy years, which is the average human lifespan, and then the volta comes traditionally after eight, which would be uh, age forty, which is your uh, your midlife crisis. So you kind of have a whole life there. You have your setup, and then your midlife crisis, and then your resolution. So it's kind of like a sonnet is a whole life right there, and uh, which is why I think uh, on the tweet I mentioned, you know, the sixteen-line sonnet, I think it works if you can live to be eighty, like rena Espayot does. <laughs> but uh you know because that'd be 16 times five and uh I don't know it's, it's interesting the way that a whole life plays out in that and we get a little journey like we do the life of an idea
0: yeah and what do you think about you know you get obviously you field so many poetry submissions all the time and the idea of having to condense it I just think is so powerful for a poem you know in terms of of having to shorten yourself perhaps and having to get somewhere really fast. And I think that that's part of what makes sonnets so memorable is the fact that they have moved there quickly. And then also just the fact that they're shorter, whereas, I don't know about you guys, but when I love a poem, the best hallmark that I love a poem is I read it and I'm like, oh, I'm reading that again, right away. I have to read it again. And it's so much easier with a sonnet because it's such a, a lesser demand on your time is part of it too. So I'd love to hear, too, from some of the other speakers we have up on their thoughts generally about sonnets before we look at more, if anybody wants to just chime in that's been added as a speaker. Joe, you are ready to go, raising your hand so politely. Go ahead, please.
2: Uh, can Can you hear me okay?
0: Yep, definitely.
2: Yeah, people have been cutting it out, but it could be my connection. Yeah, so I'm kind of a free verse guy and a wannabe sonnet guy. So I feel like to get good at sonnets, and I know you do them all the time, Katie, you, see, you have to really spend a lot of time on them. So my dream is to write a great sonnet someday, but I think it really takes a certain skill set and whatever, a thousand hours or something. So that's it. Oh,
0: go ahead, Dick. That's great. That's good, Jared.
3: Um, just a quick note, uh, riffing on what uh, Tim was talking about. The golden mean is eight over five. And I wonder if there's some sort of connection um, between those two things. Uh, you know, that the, that the voltage is at eight and there's the you know, pentameter. And uh, it, it's a stretch, but it's, you just got me thinking when you said that, Tim.
1: Yeah, there's something interesting to that. And, and two, eight over five, uh, that's the uh, 13, that's a sign at minus one. So maybe Katie should talk about the form that you uh, invented. Uh, which you're calling a sonnet minus
0: one. Oh, it, was, it was funny because like a when, when you said that I was like A plus five that's a sonnet minus one which is like, seriously how I think and going off what you were talking about Joe it's, it is like the more so I've written a lot of 13 line poems which is what I'm calling sonnet minus ones and you really do start to think about like they just start coming out in 13 line poems like I think Tim a few weeks ago to you I was saying like I don't think I can write a poem that's anything but a 13 line poem. At this point, which has fortunately i broken the the thirteen lines curse, but I guess my thinking with that was going on a tradition of part of why I love sonnets is that they tend to be about love, right? That's the most common theme, um, particularly unrequited love, um, most famously being uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, of course. And part of part of why I love sonnets too is the expectation set up through. Shakespearean sonnets, because we have all heard so many Shakespearean sonnets, many probably against our will in school. Um, But that creates an expectation where we expect to see love in a sonnet to some extent, I think. So with the 13-line sonnet, my thinking was I'd write them in couplets, and then at the end, you know, it's just a single line. And so that makes you already think of loss just because you're so set up to be seeing couplets, and then the last line is just by itself. And so that's what um, what I was doing with that. I've written way, way, way too many of them at this point, probably like, I don't know, 150 of them. <laughs> I'm a little obsessed with them. But let's go ahead and then hear from George now who has something to say about sonnets.
4: Okay. Hey, uh Hey, showed up a bit late, but I'm loving all of this talk, uh, all this numerological talk and how we're tying in fractions and numbers and things. And uh, your 13 sonnet idea, that's really cool because of the number 13. You know, it has such a such a history of good luck versus bad luck in different different societies which is interesting because they kind of flip back and forth um, as for Voltas I always have trouble with Voltas when I try to write a sonnet uh, that that to me is tricky uh, and uh, and the, the, the only other thing I, I'll, I'll add is you probably you probably noticed on my on my pin tweet if you want to stick it up there there's a really weird sonnet which has no Volta it's basically broken because it, it breaks a bunch of the rules. But it's a backwards and forwards sonnet. So I thought that was kind of cool. So I, I thought I would share it.
1: Well, for that, I think the, the Volt would be where it reverses probably. <laughs> um, I think the Volt is such a great idea, you know, given that it's so old. it's You know, it's an 800-year-old concept. But when we do the um, Critique of the Week every Friday um, for Rattle, one of the main things that always comes up is like, where did this poem go? Like what sense of, where's the sense of movement? Like if a poem is a transformative machine that, that changes your emotional state or your, your mental state, then it has to be a sense of motion to do that. And so it has to go from one place to another in some way. And so many poems that just don't work, they have sort of a setup and then, you know, interesting descriptions of that. and, and But then they don't, don't have any sense of movement. And so having the Volta you know, forces you to have some kind of sense of movement, which I think is what every poem needs. I think it's, um, you know, in in the same way that every haiku has to have a cut, there's some sense of, like, this is the initial state, this is the transformed state that I'm entering now at the end of this, this magic spell that I'm casting. And so I think that to recognize that as an integral part of the form is really interesting, um, given how far it dates back.
4: Sorry, Katie. There's just one other thing I was going to mention that before I just forgot about the about the strangeness or you know the alchemical nature that, that how we're getting into this kind of strangeness thing. One thing I noticed is uh, when I was first making NFTs and I was uh, and I was trying to put a poem on there, 14 lines seemed to be the ideal size such that it would be easily visible from a distance in a gallery. Coincidence? I think not.
1: <laughs> How many how many, uh, how many seed seed words are there in uh in a wallet or whatever? Is there is it fourteen or is it twelve? I think it's it variable. Twelve,
4: 12 it maybe very, not sure.
1: Yeah, I wonder, too uh, about the numbers. Just if if the size of a sonnet, if it if it worked so well, just in, in a similar way that phone numbers are seven digits or because um, you can remember that there's a certain amount of sort of stuff we can hold in our brain all at once to chunk it together.
4: Yeah, And uh,
1: I wonder if the a sonnet has sort of the right length that just kind of fell into that for how large a single idea can be held without moving to a new idea.
0: I think that's a really good point because I was thinking about that in terms of more like the expectation set by previous sonnets that makes us feel that way. But I think that the only solution is that we all jump on the magic school bus and Mrs. Fritz takes us back <laughs> to Italy in the 13th century and then we can examine it like that. <laughs> that's the only solution. I'll wear a crazy dress, obviously, because that's a requirement. But I was curious, Tim, something that I've kind of struggled with, I love saying the word volta, but I don't know how different it actually is from just you know a poetic turn or a cut in a haiku. Do you think that it's just that volta is specific to you know, a, a sonnet, or is there is there more of a differentiation?
1: And to me, I don't think so. I don't know, maybe somebody else who's on the, on the call has more of an opinion about that. Um, you know, I think uh, in, a, in a traditional, like, English sonnet or Italian sonnet, you know, in the Renaissance era, say, the vault is very clear, usually, exactly where it is, but then as we move, we kind of drift, and, and you know, I don't think, I, I don't write sonnets myself with any idea of like this is where the turn is on this you know on this line and yet there is a sense that you have to have some kind of motion and so i think you know in the uh, italian sonnet that volt is right there as a really central part of the form at the eighth you know after eight lines but then with the you know the english sonnet sometimes it ends up being the last couplet like the the opening poem there um, that we read that that last couplet is really where the poem turns on itself and um, so I, I don't think there's really a difference i think it's all the same thing which is this poetry has is a magic spell it has to be transformative in some way and so there has to be some sense of movement you can't i mean it's, it's like a story you know a short story has to have a plot a poem has to have a plot too and so i think the voltage just, you know it's like the climax in a plot if you were plotting it out like you do in seventh grade for a story
0: yeah maybe part of it's just that with it being expressly part of a sonnet, sonnets on average tend to be better because the turn is emphasized whereas it's not as much in a longer poem you know thought of as as much of an intrinsic part of it perhaps. but I think with that in mind, the only solution is that we start reading some sonnets to look at them and I would love it if our own Johnny Dean Mann, who kindly is joining us today despite the fact that he has an issue of the Tickle Lit, which is my favorite NFT magazine. I can say maybe that's not something I should actually say out loud, but I'm saying it right now because it's also my friend. So if you wanted to, I think that you said that you picked out a John Berryman sonnet that you wanted to read for us and we could look at that and maybe talk about the Volta afterwards.
5: Hey, Katie, uh, really interesting space. Hi, Tim as well. Um, honored uh, to be here. Uh, yeah. I'm just getting uh, with all this talk of 13th century Italy and, and kind of uh Complex number systems and such. I'm getting a very uh, sort of strong Da Vinci Code vibe here. I think this uh, this whole sonnet thing is just an overarching conspiracy of some sort, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not really massively qualified to talk about um, uh, sonnets necessarily. Uh, being more of a kind of fan of prose poetry, I would say. Um, but one of my favourite poem uh, poets is uh, John Berryman, as you as you mentioned just a moment ago. Um, I think John Berman was actually a massive fan of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's sonnets. And and probably his most famous set of works is uh, something called Dream Songs, which started out as uh, a book called 77 Dream Songs, uh, released in the early 60s, uh, which went on to be about 300 odd, I think, in the end. Um, But these were his sort of own sort of formulated kind of system, I guess. And it was a very organized system. And every single Dream Song was three six line stanzas. um, And so he sort of set up his own kind of restrictive system, much in the same way that sonnets do. But he also uh, released a series of sonnets. And uh, I think Odd Writings was talking about number 13 earlier. Uh, So uh, appropriately, I'm going to read uh, quickly Sonnet number 13 by John Berryman. I lift, lift you five states away your glass, Wide of this bar you never graced, where none ever I know came, where that work is done. Even by these men I know not, where a brass police car sign peers in, wet strange cars pass. Soiled hangs the rag of day out over this town. A jukebox brains air where I drink alone. The spruce barkeep sports a toupee, alas. My glass I lift at six o'clock, my darling, as you plotted, Chinese couples shift in bed. We shared today, not even filthy weather. Beasts in the hills, their tigerish lover snarling. Suddenly they clash. I blow my short ash red. Gray eyes light and we have our drink together.
0: Well, that's great so much. Thanks so much for reading it, even though I know you're super busy with your issue coming out tomorrow. So this is great too, because it is drawing upon my research into sonnets that got rather obsessive as i'm trying to learn the technical details and i believe this counts as a petrarchan sonnet is that right tim does anyone back me up because it does have the octave and then the sestet, which is like the volta the shift happens in between the two standas. if i was i was looking it up as you're reading it because i'd like to read along
1: yep that looks like the form to me although i'm no expert either i think i'd love to hear from uh pedro pointed who, um, is here as a speaker for the first time? And uh, he's one of the most fascinating poets out there because he's a mathematician and a bilingual poet, too. And I'm sure he has interesting ideas about the sonnet. So I'm curious what Pedro thinks.
6: Oh, thank you, Tim. Uh, this is fantastic. I, I just wanted to say that um, regarding the Volta, um, there are some sonneteers, or there have been in the past for a long time. Uh, People who conceive of the volta as a as a more strenuous uh, turn. Uh, So I've I've heard, for example, somebody say that the sonnet is a beautiful uh, a beautiful woman who undresses in eight lines and uh, dresses in eight lines and undresses in the last in the in the sestet. Or if you wanna say something and you can say it in eight lines, but then you wanna contradict it in in six, then you have material for a sonnet. So that strong opposition between the actions in, in, in one part of the sonnet and, 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 and what happens after the turn uh, happens to be part of the tradition. Now, of course, I agree with Tim. I think um, a looser understanding of a turn is, is, more, is more generative. It's more promising for the form than this um, initial constraint but I think that's probably why we detect those sharp turns in sonnets more often than we do in other kinds of poems. I just wanted to offer that, those thoughts.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I know you have some, some great ideas and quotes there. Um, yeah. And the other thing I I keep thinking about in terms of sonnets are, um, the way that, you know, the sonnet is the most popular Western poetry form. And, um, if you look at other, you know, the other sort of popular poetry forms in in the the Middle East and the in the Far East, you have um um like the guzzle, which is uh, you know t- um, two-line couplets that extend and stretch out forever and are kind of made to be communally written, right? Because you can go back and forth and their songs and people sing back and forth. And then in the in the Japanese tradition, you have um you know, haiku, with all the renku and all that linked verse that they do in Japan, which is also a communal thing. And I wonder if um, the sonnet resonates with sort of Western individualism, too, and in that it it's not it's not driven toward that sort of communal effort in literature. And it's a, a, a single individualist type expression, which is, I think, a, a different kind of Western idea. So that that was interesting too, as far as uh, science goes. I wonder if anybody has any thoughts on that. That was a thought I had about ten minutes ago for the first time. Uh,
4: I agree with it.
3: Uh, to to riff on that sort of Western piece a little bit, it also seems that we have. Um, a certain sense in the West of what order is—that um, it has a, you know, it, it has a, a set of rules and linearity to it, and and uh, predictability, which seems, um, you know, that that uh, you know, which is one of the reasons why rhyming work is so popular, rhyming metered work is so popular, and interpreted as poetry even when it's not in in the West by by many folks, just as our our urge towards uh, like fitting everything in a matrix.
0: Yeah, I was speaking of matrix, I'm gonna make an awkward transition to talking about the matrix as a movie right now because (laughs) I love what Pedro was saying. I found it fascinating. And it also made me think of in terms of at the beginning of the space, we're talking about well, what makes the sonnet so memorable, what makes it so popular? And that huge shift, I mean, feels like a very Western thing, you know, as an arc in a movie and things like that too. So maybe that's also more of why it resonates so much with us as part of that as well. And the other thing I was thinking about with, in terms of resonance too, is of course, uh, rhyming you know, the rhyming schemes and how much that helps it stay in our memory long beyond when we've read the sonnet, particularly when it is a shorter poem, uh, the rhymes have more of a capability of popping back up later in the day when you remember having read a sonnet earlier on, and it's so important. Even as rhyming poetry is lambasted for some reason in, in the contemporary world, and I have to say, uh, back when I was in college, I would be like, oh, rhyming poems. And I was one of those people that was like, oh, I'm anti rhyming poem, which is like really a travesty. But my poems were terrible then anyway. So it didn't hurt anyone in the long run. But I know, Tim, you have a lot of opinions on rhymes and poems, of course.
1: Yeah, well, I do. I, I wish uh, more poems rhymed. And I, you know, I love playing with rhyme, internal rhyme and slant rhyme and different patterns. Um, one of my favorite sonnet types. Um, which I like to write, is a um, sort of evolving through slant rhyme. So at first, you don't notice the first, you know, for the first stanzas, and then they get closer and closer toward the last couplet. I think that's a really fun way to write a sonnet, too. I think it's really fun to play with that stuff. And it all goes back to, you know, poetry as a mnemonic device, which is one of the original purposes of it, um, to keep it in your memory, you know, to keep important myths and ideas, um, you know, present in the consciousness, and um, and then the way that it, that you know, a poem is regulated breath and, and the, the way that we play that, that we play the body in the human breath as if it were an instrument. I think you know, rhyming and meter is so such a central part of that. And I, I love poems, too, that, that are free verse or, or no verse at all, and do other ways of storytelling and ways of sharing and ways of communicating the music of speech. But but rhyme and meter. They're just wonderful. And it's it really breaks my heart kind of that only maybe five to ten percent of submissions that we get at Rattle are um formal poetry.
0: Well, maybe we should unbreak some hearts today by having you read your sonnet, What Passes for Optimism at MacArthur Park, because it's a great sonnet. I have to I have to confess to you, the first time I read this I just didn't even notice the rhymes because I think they're so well done. So I would love it if you would indulge me by reading that poem <laughs> of yours. Oh,
1: thanks, Katie. Sure, yeah, this is a so this is a, a couplet sonnet, which is a, also a Clarion sonnet, would be another word for it after John Clare, who popularized it um, back a couple hundred years ago. So it's uh, heroic couplets. And uh, this is what passes for optimism at MacArthur Park. And MacArthur Park is the, the main park sort of in downtown LA, which is just mostly concrete and garbage. And uh, when my daughter was born, I spent a lot of time, you know, while uh, Megan was in the hospital um, or, you know, getting visits, just kind of wandering around that area. And uh, this poem came from that, I think, or maybe actually, no, it came a little earlier. So it was other, other medical visits, but there's a near a medical center, let's just say. So uh, so I was wandering around there. And uh, this is my viewing of the scene. What Passes for Optimism at MacArthur Park? Beside the concrete pond, small children fish for nothing. This is all it costs to wish, a yard of yarn, a crooked stick. They cast their paper cups as if they might outlast hunger, as if a minnow might appear from muck and shoes and empty cans of beer. We watch them scoop up all the trash that floats we watch the lovers on their paddle boats like swans like swans little children holler we have our picture taken for a dollar well on the gravel path the pigeons scatter for crumbs their tiny feet to kind of chatter so empty and so full of soft demands that everyone not listening understands yeah
0: it's such a great poem i really love it I'd love to hear it. I've already told him all my thoughts on this poem many times so I think somebody else is talking about it out there. What
4: did, what did you say the title was again?
1: Uh, what Passes for Optimism at MacArthur Park.
4: Okay so there wasn't any specific mention of uh, medical maladies or anything. I'm thinking no. Okay yeah no okay then then my My surmise is is not uh, accurate. I was thinking because when I hear the word swans, the first the first thing I think about is death, because uh, I know there's there's been a history of of swans being used as a symbol of death. Back in medieval times, you would see, you know, swans going down a river and that was supposed to portent, you know, oh, you know, coming coming bad things. But uh, I guess that's kind of that's that's neither here nor there with respect to this poem. I love the poem, by the way
1: oh yeah no it is i mean that is the topic is about what we you know what we need out of life i guess is what i'm, what I'm pondering and then as i what is the way i write poems i never know what i'm writing about i just kind of let it flow and see what happens and so that's the case with this and every other poem i've ever written So um, I think all the things that were swirling around in my brain at the time are what come out in the poem. And I think that engagement with the right brain that's holistic and nonverbal and knows more than you is what poetry is really about. So, So I never really know exactly what's going on.
0: Well, I have a question with that, though. So you may not have known what was going on, but did you have the feeling? I mean, you had to know you're writing a sonnet, right? That's not the kind of form. It's like it's not like an American sonnet where it can just pop out and be like, hey, that is actually a sonnet, technically. I guess I'd be curious as that question for you or Pedro or Dick or Joe or George, if you're writing a sonnet, is there something that goes into it where you're like, hey, I think this is headed in the direction of sonnet or something that you're feeling more that makes it likely you're going to head in that direction, even
1: if you're not sure. Well, I think for for this poem, and, and for, you know, talking to poets over the years, I think most people, it, it tends to feel the same way, where the the initial lines and where you start sort of determine where you end up going. And so I think I had the first, you know, couplet there, and then I knew it was kind of, it was going to be heroic couplets, because the first two lines came out in a rhyme. And then you, you sort of push that forward and then you you sort of see the trajectory going and like oh this is going to be this length you know you kind of feel you just feel it and then in the same way you write 13 line poems over and over again now you kind of get it once you're writing a lot of 14 line poems you kind of get just a feel where they come out that way and so I think uh, that's the case I think that's how it generally works but I'd love to hear from other people
2: uh, yeah Tim and Katie can you hear me yep
0: yeah.
2: The other thing I was going to say is that sometimes when I write, I just write, and then I kind of look to the form to lead, I look to the poem to lead me to the form. So if you play with a poem long enough and something isn't working, you might try flipping it or turning it or adding a haiku or say, oh my God, if I keep going in this direction, it's a sonnet. So I think sometimes you listen to the poem as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely what, um, what I mean. Like you, like the first lines, I, I didn't even know I was going to write a rhyming poem, but then they just, they come out that way, and then that guides you as to where you're going. Um, so so my comment uh,
3: sort of is a little pretentious, because I don't know if I've ever written a successful sonnet, but uh, what um, both the last uh, Tim said, and I'm sorry, I have abbreviation on my, uh, for S-H-E, who just said that, um, often it starts with that same thing that I'm sort of like feeling the rhythm and rocking in my seat and the second line comes out with a rhyme at the end or with the same rhythm. And that sometimes is motivation. And the other, and I've, I've heard uh, uh, Rina Des... Es, how do you pronounce her name, Tim? Um, uh, Espayat And yeah. Maxine Kuman both comment on this and I'm sure many others is that there's some um um there's some things that need to be contained in a tight box I have I have a sonnet called um uh can I contain this fear in a box the size of a sonnet and it's sort of like this was something that just had to be in a, I had to get to the end and I had to discipline myself not to um like turn this into a narrative but uh you know to contain it in a in a rhythmic patterned limited box so those are those are the two things that have happened for me one is what tim said and the other is this urge to contain something something with so much you know emotional weight that i needed a container to keep it from becoming sort of full of cliches that's
0: interesting i think too for me you know i didn't start out Thinking I was going to write this, I wrote um, actually an NFT collection of normal American sonnets, so to speak. And then I started thinking about how things that would fit better in a 13 line container. And then I just started thinking in 13 line poems. You know, they just came out and I'd be like, hey, that's 13, you know, just without, it just became intrinsically a part of me where I wasn't as much thinking about doing it, but it's just how I began to express myself through poetry was through these, that size container, like I'd organized my brain somehow, one hopes. All right, George, you've had your hand up now for a little bit, let's hear from you.
4: I was gonna say, I, I, I share a lot of things that uh, what, what Timothy said, um, when, when I start out, there's only, if, if I'm planning to write a, a palindrome poem, then that, that's the only time when I start a poem and it's like, okay, it's gonna be in this format. But if I'm going to write something, it's always just whatever comes out. And then, you know, as it evolves, it kind of turns into something. And usually it turns out rhyming and kind of mixed together. But it, it very rarely very rarely do I feel like, oh, this feels like a sonnet. I think it's because I haven't written very many of them. There's only a few that I've written. Um, but what I find is I tend to write a lot of nine-line poems. Somehow, I, just like you, you have the thing about 13, Somehow I started to write poems and just nine nine lines just seemed to start to come out. Uh, Anyways.
0: Oh, that's super interesting. I think, too, we should probably look at more sonnets. One of the things that's so great about talking about sonnets in a space is that they're not too long, so we can actually cover a lot of them. And I was thinking that, um, Joe Barca, I know that you're a huge fan of the Sandwich Shop sonnet written by Alexis Sears who's a a new formalist. I think it's fair to call her that. And I think it'd be great if you could read her. This is such a fun sonnet. So we can mix it up with that one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Katie, I'm going to put in a plug for Alexis. If you don't know her, she's her first book was called out of order and it's sort of, it's a masterclass on form. I'll call it that. And it's also, and not this one, but most of the poems are confessional. So um, she really has a gift for form. She writes, I mean, we haven't even mentioned this term today, but it's one of my favorite terms in poetry, which is a crown of sonnets. And um, I'll give my, my best effort to explain what it is before I read, but I think it's basically linking, it may be, Tim might know, or Katie, I think it might be seven sonnets together and so that the last so- last line in one sonnet becomes the first line in the next sonnet. But that could be a whole other discussion. Tim and Katie, do you remember Alexis talking about these and you're familiar with them?
0: Yes, and I made an OCD spreadsheet where I list the different types of crown of sonnets. And there's there's even the heroic crown of crowns. So we've got to figure out what goes on top of that, like the overlord heroic crown of crowns. That's what I want to write. With the heroic crown of crowns being 211 sonnets. But oh my the, God. Crown, <laughs> the crown a crown of sonnets is a sonic sequence where the last line of the preceding sonnet is the first of the next sonnet. And then the last line of the sequence is the same as the first line. And then the heroic crown is actually 15 sonnets. So it's like a standard crown of sonnets, except there is a master sonnet, which is awesome. And that is made up of either all the first lines or all the last lines. I'm not sure if you can mix those. Maybe Tim, you know that. I think you're supposed to pick either the first or the last, and then that they're in order. And that's the master sonnet, master sonnet of the heroic crown. So a lot of cool names.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot it's of cool it's names. all the yeah, it's all the repeated lines being used over again, and then the the best version of it is in the same order. So you're building the poem, you know, sonnet by sonnet without even knowing it. Which, um, like Patricia's Motown crown, does that. Um, as does, um, we just published one in the winter issue of Rattle by, um, um, by Anna Evans. Yeah. I knew
0: that <laughs> one. I was going to beat you to saying your name. I'm so <laughs> you proud <of> myself. I <laughs> love that one. I wish we had time to read that, but that would be like one tenth of our space, so we don't. So, Joe. Yeah, would I'm going to read. Enough uh, right,
2: right, with awesome. the introductions. Yes, here we go. <laughs> it's, here we go. It's called Sandwich Shop Sonnet The Sandwich Artist at the Hoagie Shop. A chubby, cool aunt type with lime green hair. Ask me, do you have a man? I stop and think, should I make up a love affair? I'll brag about my grungy Boston dude whose smashing pumpkin's t-shirt hides his tats. The architect with Mensa aptitude. He used to cheer the college Democrats. An athlete, maybe six foot three and ripped who tutors prisoners on his free days. I'll find a writer type whose brilliant script lights up my face and cures my deep malaise. But I say no, my eyes fixed on my feet. She sighs, here, have this ham and cheese, my treat. Yeah,
0: that's definitely a great poem. We should also say that Tim, you interviewed Alexis Sears on the Rattlecast. I think like last summer, so anybody looking for her poems or
1: more info should check that out. Yeah, it was a good episode talking about a lot of different forms. She had a few that I wasn't familiar with at all if I remember right, that, that not sonnets, but other, other formal poems that I was like, what's that? It's always fun for me. Maybe we and- should talk a little bit about um, what doesn't work in sonnets. You know, since we talked about what's good, um, you know, why is it that some people don't like formal poetry? And um, and we mentioned Rena Espayat a bunch of times, and I think this this is a great uh, explanation. It's one of my favorite. It's a, it's a 16 line sonnet. And we can argue about whether or not that counts as a sonnet. Um, but, um, but this is one of the things that, that you know forcing forcing things not to uh, to fit is one of the problems. So this is work in progress. Should I read that?
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Okay. So uh, work in progress. This is Rena P. Espayat he showed me some and asked for my advice i pointed out a line that wouldn't scan a pair of rhymes that cried for a divorce and commented but briefly on the quotes in foreign alphabets unglossed of course he said and nodded and took notes as if okay with all of it and then i added put back every v and an and a it's almost nothing what they do but articles make what they say ring true you never know what buttons not to touch which almost nothing's going to prove too much. This morning he submitted work again, but brusque, defensive, with a hint of spice. Only fool goes walk for walk in minefield twice. Next time I'll tell him poem is very nice. And uh, so I just think that's hilarious. But you hear the volta right there too, where um, you know you never know what buttons not to touch. Is the turn there, which is why I think it's a it's a sonnet, even though it's sixteen lines and then, and that's the thing though, that that the part of the sonnet, especially um the English sonnet in the English language, is that that is I pentameter is the most natural way of speaking and having a natural voice in there with all the articles and and with you know, the best sonnets, in my opinion, are the ones where you don't realize it's a sonnet at first. And then you're you're like, "Oh, that was a sonnet. That's even cool. And it makes you love the poem even more than you did initially. So that's one thing I wanted to mention, too.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the case that you don't notice right away. Oh, Pedro would like to say something. I'd love to hear from you again. What you said earlier was so interesting. So I'm excited that you're raising your hand.
6: <laughs> Thank you, Keith. Um yeah, no, that was fantastic. I love that 16-line sonnet by Irina. And I didn't want to waste the opportunity to 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 read another light sonnet. <laughs> this one is mine. And uh it has a volta, which is why why I, I like it even though it's so constrained and it is called sonnet about itself everything it says is absolutely true this sonnet has 10, ten sentences in all just three of them are in parentheses it beats your reader reader be a all truth of each of these This has exactly 97 words. The ones that show up most are the and this. It says about its words, not quite two-thirds occur before the word analysis. This is 420 letters long. The one that shows up most is letter E. It comments on itself, nothing is wrong with my self-referentiality. Yet even after checking every box, this sonnet, has a hint of paradox
0: oh that's just great thanks so much for reading this i don't even know which line to pick it just flows so wonderfully and the vault is excellent too i've
4: i've heard i've heard you i've heard you read that one before pedro it's it's wonderful i love it and 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 i love the thing about you know, it's self-referential, so as soon as you put in the number of letters, it's like, you know, it's going to change itself, so it's like, it's really, it's really, it's really interesting. I love it.
0: That's really great. So, so one thing I wanted to, I had a slightly controversial statement that I wanted to put forth to you guys. I feel like, I already might disagree, but I feel like we need a little bit more controversy in poetry, at least from my perspective, which is, Okay, so talking about um, now variations in sonnets, so moving on to that, I am of the opinion that American sonnets are not actually a variation so much as a progression of the form as a whole, i.e. like it's okay to say that something is a sonnet just based on the fact that it is 14 lines. And to me, ideally employs some kind of rhyme, but it doesn't need to at all be some sort of scheme or anything. It can be slant, internal, anything like that. And then uh, has a volta are, are kind of my conditions for what constitutes thinking of something as a sonnet um, versus just an American sonnet, which is thought of as just being a looser, usually what I'm talking about now, but thinking about it as like that's what a sonnet is in 2023 which I'm guessing Tim is going to adamantly oppose.
1: <laughs> well, no, I uh, I love all poems, and so American sonnets are great, too. But uh, but it is. If I if I see, like, you know, if, if the title is, like, sonnet after McDonald's or something, and then I see that it's an American sonnet, I'm a little disappointed, I have to say, because, um, you know, I'm hoping for some rhyme and meter, but it doesn't come. It's uh, it leaves me a little sad. So I would have to say that it's my least favorite form of sonnet. Although I like all poems, so so it's it's fine on its own. I just, uh, I don't know. It's it's the the greatest area you can get. But do you have it? Do you have a um, American sonnet queued up? You could read, Katie. Uh, I can
0: in a second.
1: <laughs> well, <Which am laughs> me get it. we're gonna talk about it. I mean, American sonnets were I think invented by Wanda Coleman, right?
0: Yeah, we were looking at that. Invented by Wanda Coleman, and also wanted to say that like. I hate the name American sonnet for this form. We need a cool name. What happens to the last names? Those worked so well. I mean, nobody forgets Shakespearean sonnets, you know, Petrarchan sonnets. We needed a name to go with instead of just American. We slapped that word on everything these days.
1: Yeah, I think that's. Um, I think it was the same time as um, um, Ginsburg was inventing the American sentence as a version of a haiku, and there was a sort of idea of making poetry American was a sort of a thing we were doing. But, um, but I feel like it's, it's almost like fitting because it's so lame <laughs> as far as the form goes. So um, that's just my, my uh, bias though, I guess. Dick, you wanna say something? Go
3: ahead. Yeah, um, so I th- when you're talking about American Sonnet, you're talking about not rhyming, not metered, but contained in the skin of a sonnet, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's the definition is I, I think she um, I think Wanda initially wanted to call it a jazz sonnet and then for some reason settled on American sonnet instead. But it's just going 14 lines and and having, you know, completely I don't even know. We don't have a word for what what we do where there's no meter whatsoever because free verse sort of has a meter buried in it so- and um, being completely devoid of any kind of meter it's what she's talking about so so yeah 14 lines and that's the only constraint i think right right katie
0: yeah i think that it is i mean there's there's an like that's the only rigid constraint so to speak but when you speak about it like there is generally i think a little bit of expectation of some rhyme it's also interesting though that because i think that before it was called american sonnet wanda coleman from that interview that you found for me tim and linked to me that is on Twitter, too. She was thinking about calling them jazz sonnets, which I wish, you know, first of all, I wish she'd just called them Coleman sonnets, because then, you know, everybody would know who she was, and she's a great poet. But she didn't choose to do that. I mean, I I can understand, I would feel pretty narcissistic naming a poetic form after myself. So I do understand that aspect of it. I still wish she had. But anyway, she was thinking about naming it, uh, you know, jazz sonnets. And I think that that's a great way of looking at it, because The shorter a poem is in general, I think the, you know, the more the music is even perhaps more impactful because you have such a short amount of time to make an impression. And so the way I think about these is in terms of jazz sonnets, like there is an expectation, a heightened expectation of musicality over other poems in writing an American sonnet. It's just not, you know, a strict meter and it's not a strict rhyme, but there is an expectation to rhyme. And in most of my sonnet minus, minus ones, I would go so far as to say, Probably all of them. There is some element of rhyme, and um, you know, if that's that's by far the most likely to show up in the um, in the last couple lines too. Uh, go ahead, sick I think you're raising your hand. Yeah, here.
3: yeah. I just wanted to sort of finish the thought. So this is a, a Rena Espelat sort of commentary on a poem that now I understand American sonnet. Says it has the taut live skin of a sonnet, even without perfect rhyme or perfect meter or rhyme and perfect meter and that skin contains it wholly cleanly and I love that sort of like like the skin of the sonnet contains it wholly with perfect details conveyed in quick metaphors and then this line without any extra packing material. So that I can live with as sort of a definition of the sort of sonnet that that I'm thinking of as an American sonnet, sort of like this this container that has nothing extra in it um, except for these, these elements that
2: she mentions. Hey, well, Katie, can I, go ahead, Katie, you go. Go ahead, sorry. No, I just wanted to throw out another kind of follow-up question that I don't know the answer to about sonnets, and that is the length of the stanzas. Does anyone have an opinion, are there certain Parameters. I used to think four, I used to think three. I think Tim or someone mentioned two. Are there any uh, guidelines?
0: I think that that has evolved with the form as time has gone on in terms of strictly adhering to different versions of sonnets. Personally, for me, I have been favoring, you know, for writing the 13 line ones, I've favored. Uh, doing them in couplets because it more makes it obvious that there is a line missing in the sonnet, which I'm thinking, too. I know, Tim, you asked me to find an American sonnet, and I feel kind of stupid about this, but I'm tempted (laughs) to read mine because (laughs) I did tweet it earlier, and it is in keeping with Pedro's lightheartedness, though not anywhere near as skilled as his, to be honest.
1: Yeah, why don't you go for it?
0: Okay. Okay. So this is what I consider to be an American sonnet minus one, or just a sonnet minus one because I'm dropping the American. As an American, I can do that. So this is called uh, a sonnet in recession, and it was published by One Art uh, in January. I wrote it. I wrote it more when the recession was literally anything anybody was talking about uh, last summer. A sonnet in recession. Some metaphors are too obvious. We all fell off a stationary bike. My daughter's pop bubbles, and we read a book about bears. A canoe crashes off a waterfall's chart. The playgrounds are parents pushing their phones on swings. Conversations sink to a chorus of lyrics lamenting the price of gas. Fortunes are lost as fast as blowing out birthday candles. We forget to be Banksy's red balloons instead of shredded paintings. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Not even a squiggly square of ramen noodles stuffed into a wrinkled brown sack. But they still haven't found a way to tax us for our thoughts. The best brains are anti fragile. They'll patch our cracked AI commodities with molten gold. What first presents as plunging could be the biggest swing of all.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you definitely hear the internal rhyme there. Um, do you want to read, for a comparison, do you want to read um, um, Terrence Hayes is probably the most famous American here. Um, Do you want to hear a, a, one of his uh, American sonnet for my past and future assessment? I think it won the the Pulitzer Prize, right? Or the National Book Award. Yeah, it did.
0: I, that was one of the books, one of the first, that's what got me into the American Sonnet in part. That and Diane Seuss's books, I read them you know, back to back and just was like, wow, this is a form that so resonates. So I, yeah, I would love it if you read Terrence Hayes. We should definitely be talking about him when we're talking about American Sonnets.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this is um, American Sonnet for my past and future and They're all titled the same and then the first line is how to usually reference them. So I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the Crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart, Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. So there you go. So what I wanted to do is see if um the internal rhyme was as prevalent as in your poem, Katie. And I think it is. There you have the the crow and undergo and, and rhymes like that throughout that are, you know, it, it's hard to write, you know, say anything or write anything without rhyme, you know, cause words just happen to say, you know, phonemes sound the same. And so what we mean by internal rhyme usually I think is on, on a stress. And so, you know, the crow and undergo is something that stands out a lot whereas other things that are unstressed rhymes don't um, and, and in heightened parts of the poem too. And so I think you have that both here and in your sonnets minus one too. So um so I guess that does make sense.
0: Well, I'll take any comparison to Terrence Hayes that I can get my hands on. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, you can go ahead, George, if you'd like to go ahead and speak. I think anybody who has your hands up, you are definitely welcome to just go ahead and speak. But I do appreciate how polite you're being to me.
4: <laughs> okay. Dick Dick also has his, his hands up. I don't know, I don't know if it was from before or not, but I just wanted to say I loved that I love the use of the word little room. A little room. If I if if I'm not mistaken, does isn't that the meaning of a stanza?
1: Yeah, it is. That's the that's the, the etymology of it.
4: I thought that was clever. And I like clever things. So but
1: good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Dick, do you want to say something?
4: No, it was a residu
3: residual hand up. It's it's the it's the curse of not actually having to use muscles
2: to hold up your hand. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Katie and Tim can I ask a quick other question Katie this is going to quiz you on your, your calculus there all the data you have Alexis oh, also, gosh. <laughs> no it's alright you don't have to answer it but Alexis also wrote a sonnet redouble, or redouble am I saying it correctly I think it's 15 sonnets in a row about her father so pretty cool you know getting into, the, into it with that many sonnets about a person anyway that was it Katie yeah that's super cool I think
0: that that's so that's a. I, if my Wikipedia research this morning served me well, I think that's another name for a heroic crown when it's fifteen sonnets. Which is, I really, this is really getting me going, guys. Maybe I'm going to have to try this. Or I was thinking if I did a ton of sonnet minus ones, I could call it like a lost earring of sonnet minus ones, or some sort of jewelry <laughs> reference. I think is necessary.
2: I love it.
1: Yeah, it'd have to be the thirteen sonnet minus ones, and then the the one line that's not a couplet will have to be the. Uh, make a poem at the end
0: man that would have to be a really strong strong last line (laughs) for that it's like a lot of jewelry in that one but yeah that'll be fun to go ahead and do one day but yeah those are super impressive i mean and that really shows just the insane power of reading a heroic crown of sonnets i mean it's one of the absolute most powerful poetic forms i think
1: Absolutely. yeah when i was a kid uh, or not a kid but in college i guess like, i was a kid in college um you know what i used to do you know i was a science major but just for fun I'd, i had some english classes i'd go to the stacks at the university of rochester's library and just pull off i'd take a book that i wanted and i'd take a book at random with my eyes closed and i just happened to pull out unholy sonnets by mark jarman um, and his father was a preacher and he has these really conflicted feelings about faith that that um, you know he is a, a poet of faith, and yet he has all these conflicting feelings about it, which he goes through in a detail in unHoly sonnets, which is a spinoff of John Dunne, So then I got into reading John Donne's Holy sonnets, uh, that you know, hundreds of years ago, sonnet sequence. And there's so much you can do with sequencing and moving through ideas. It's a great container for for thought, is really what a sonnet is. I think ultimately.
6: Agreed, agreed. I've I, I've written a couple of uh, sonnet grounds and um, in one of them it was about the seven deadly sins and so there were uh, seven sonnets from the perspective of humans and then seven sonnets from the perspective of of a god a deity and it's it's just amazing that you can you can use the structure of the sonnet crown in this case well there were 14 sonnets and one matrix sonnet uh, or master sonnet uh, as we we were told before and um, in another one I changed, uh, I, I explored 15 hours of a single day, for example. So there's a sonnet for each one of 15 hours of wakefulness in a day. And it's about the permutations of routines so the, the rhyme schemes all change from sonnet to sonnet. Um, there's lots of things that you can do. You can explore l- structurally, too, um, lots of conceits. With uh, with the sonnet crown as a, as a as a form, which is very interesting. There's also the the sestina uh, can be generalized to a fourteen line, and you can explore something that I I would call a sonetina which is mm-hmm. uh, you know a sestina or a basically a fourteen ina, in which the initial the initial stanza is itself a sonnet. Um, I've done one of those in Spanish as well
1: i want want,
6: George. go ahead yeah i'm sorry sorry everybody and i i want
4: everybody to read pedro's stuff i just i love his stuff there um it was in the constrained writing class is is i think where i where i heard you give a give a, a lecture on that stuff but anyways i recommend him to everybody everybody pedro pedro he's right there everybody check him out please
0: you should see my notes from this space where i'm like mad i'm like scribbling everything pedro says Like I love the seven deadly sins idea. That is so brilliant. I can't
2: wait to read more of your stuff, Pedro. Super cool. Katie, I know we're running out of time, but I had a question for Pedro. Pedro, when you create like a a crown of sonnets, do you have like seven poems in mind or do you start with one and then link it and then create the second one? What's kind of, how do you vision it and then create it?
6: uh no no i, I um so so I, I i believe i think it was auden who said that form looks for content and content looks for form and um so often enough when i when a line comes to me uh the line is is trying to look for for a form but but the the, the sonnet crowns um it, they work out the other way around for me uh, i need to first find something that fits the form um so i need to figure out what could possibly be told in a sequence of 14 long stanzas um so in the case of the of the sonnet the, the sonnet crown about the seven deadly sins the, the the fact that 7 multiplied by 2 is 14 was particularly useful and um and and in the one about the one in spanish the, um the one about routine uh i knew that i wanted to explore the combinatorial um, richness of, of routine, and I wanted to change rhyme schemes. So I knew that I, 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 had, I was going to explore something in a large setting with a lot of stanzas, and that's where the, the idea came from. So I'm always, if the form is too unwieldy, I really need to find the, the content first to fit it before I begin to attempt anything.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to add on to that, because that's exactly what uh, the crowns we've published, the heroic cl- crowns, I should say, that we've published uh, came about that way. The Motown Crown by Patricia Smith was actually the only poem we've ever solicited, because we usually just rely on submissions. But I was at the AWP in Chicago, and Patricia was reading in an off-site reading, and she read Motown Crown. And I came up to her afterward and said, uh, hey, can I have that? <laughs> and then she said, sure. And ended up being, I think, in Best American Poetry. But so we talked about how that came to be. And she set out like Patricia usually does. She She's always trying to push herself and grow a new direction. She set out to write a hero crown. She wanted it to be something that she'd done in her life and thought about what content she could fit in there and her history with Motown um, and the different artists allowed her to move through different sort of topics and different artists through the, the crown. That's why she picked the topic, because she wanted to write a crown, so she looked for content that fit the topic. And it was the same thing with Anna Evans through a crown from the winter issue, too. She she um, had this topic that she wanted to cover in a lot of different angles and, and knew that that was something that she could get into that crown, and so that's what she did
0: gosh, with this discussion, I can totally see why spaces can go on for hours and hours and hours because it feels really weird to be wrapping this up right now because there's just so much interesting discussion. But I am normally at the point where I would be reading a closing poem, but I'm actually going to tip something I've never done, which is put Pedro on the spot because I think everybody would love to hear one more of his sonnets. If you're up for reading another one of your sonnets to close out the space, Pedro, I think everybody would love that. If not, though, no, no pressure
6: oh my god (laughs) sure uh all right so uh, i i will read one thank you so much i i appreciate it um i guess uh i should read one that is a little tricky um so this one um is the longest sonnet in the world (laughs) um so what that means is that the the entirety of the sonnet is made up of airport codes. You know, like for example, when you travel from Boston, the airport code for Boston Logan is BOS and for O'Hare in Chicago is O R D and so on. So I I I put together a bunch of blocks of airport codes and I stacked them next to each other to to write this sonnet. So all the words are made up of airport codes. And it is called A Doomsday Prayer for the Polluting Ape. Look at my brethren gathering today in airport transit rooms. They wander by as if untangling dreams, a flame but gray from noctilucent broom, a burnish lie. Behold, fair muse, a bright awakening, valises hobbling forth on tiring hands filling out trifling papers, fidgeting, disorder beauty never understands. Regard meek faces pondering regret, others upbeat and searching for some plain, others absorbed in labor, others yet deciphering abstruse passages in vain. Despite noise, carbon footprint, air pollution, accordum, bitter hope for absolution. Thank
0: you. Oh, that was great. And you pulled that so fast. I'm so impressed. Like people are gonna think that we spoke before the space and had you all ready to go, but you were just that prepared. You're like more prepared than me and I've never even talked to you before. So thanks for reading and for all the wisdom you were sharing with Sonnets today, Pedro. You really add a lot to the space. And thanks so much to all the speakers, to Joe Barca, George Pistana or Odd, as I have learned recently, he prefers to be called, but I still have to get over because it, it feels vaguely like I'm insulting him. that. <laughs> Even though I love things that are odd. And Dick Westheimer, thank you so much for joining in. And then uh, Johnny Dean Man, who had to go, but he's still there, okay. So thank you guys so much. Um, Kim, this was a great discussion. I feel like uh, we are gonna have to have another sonnet space in the future because we did not cover like one eighth of the things that I thought we would get to.
1: Well, if we're going to be doing this every week, we have plenty of topics and uh, plenty of need for topics. So, yeah, let's do sonnets again sometime.
0: Yes. And so, next week, we're not going to be able to have a space, sadly, but it's going to be, get this, guess how many days it's going to be until the next one, Tim?
1: Oh, that would be two weeks. So, 14, maybe?
0: 14! 14. <laughs> 14 days! 14 is the number of a day because we're now on Sesame Street. And, um, then next so then that will be in two weeks and we're going to be looking at metaphors so a big one for them too so lots of times to prepare and get ready for
5: that
1: yeah looking forward to it we just announced our uh, neil postman for metaphor award winner last year um you know then the use of metaphors and organ of perception we'll be talking about that and uh favorite metaphors how to come up with metaphors who knows what else great metaphors and poems we'll see what we come up with looking forward to Katie. Okay, sorry we get, miss you next week but uh we'll have fun waiting
0: oh, thanks well yep and thanks you guys so much for coming in space today really i have learned a tremendous amount today thanks to you all and i hope to see you in two weeks and 14 days where all of you will have of course written your own heroic crown by that point most most likely pedro i guess i would say <laughs> okay. well thanks so much guys i hope you have a great day and thanks for coming to poetry space Bye!